Hi, welcome to the second episode of the Ottawa Lookout Pop-Up Pod. My name is Robert Hiltz. I'm the managing editor of the newsletter and your host. We wanted to bring you something a little different in the lead up to the election, more than just a newsletter. And today, we've got one of the lower profile candidates to join us to talk a little bit about how he's bringing new ideas to a campaign full of familiar faces. With the election coming at us on Monday, I also wanted to mention we reached out to both the campaigns of Bob Shirelli and Mark Sutcliffe, but neither wanted to participate. It would have been great to have them on the show, but sometimes that's how it goes. After election day, we're going to be bringing you some analysis about what happened, what it all means, and what's next for the city. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the support of Lookout members. I wanted to once again thank everyone who supports our journalism. This time, we sat down with mayoral candidate Brandon Bay. Brandon is a software developer in the city who has been active in community associations and charities throughout town. He's running an interesting campaign, looking to bring new ideas to the race without necessarily looking to win the most votes. In our conversation, we talk about housing, what the heck R1 zoning is and why we should get rid of it, how to fix the transit system, and what it means to run a campaign that isn't all about winning. Let's get to it. All right, Brandon Bay, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. It's, it's great to have you. Um, in, a, in a recent debate, you had sort of said, quite frankly, that you're, you're not running to win and become mayor necessarily. You, you just want to talk about issues and get certain things on the table. It, is that a fair point? Yeah, yeah, that's more or less a fair assessment of what's happening here. Um, <laughs> I guess I'll give you a little background on how I ended up in this race. Um, back in November, almost a year ago now, when Jim Watson announced that he wasn't running again, um, the the names that immediately came forward, you know, Diane Deans, Catherine McKenney, and Bob Shirelli, were all, you know, notable names, experience on council, but all you know, within the same generation, more or less. The average age was 68, and I thought it was important to have a younger voice at the debate table. And I thought, you know, there are some issues that are important to me and to my peers and, you know, that I'd been talking to friends and coworkers a lot about lately that were just, you know, motivating millennials more than we've been politically, especially at a municipal level in the past. And I wanted to make sure that that voice was going to be represented in the debates and, you know, in the discussion around the issues and I wanted to make sure that we were heard and the next council was focused on those priorities among you know the ones for their own generation and it wasn't just like left out of the conversation and we were shut out of politics as many people in our you know my demographic feel like they have been for a long time and so it's it's really been about visibility of those issues and you know, getting some of this experience and connections in case this is something that I want to pursue in the future, but it's not really about winning this time. It's just about, you know, holding other candidates to task. What surprised you about the whole process going into it like that with, with sort of your outlook of like, let's just talk about issues. Is it, is it working? Yeah, I've, I've been better received than I expected. I mean, <laughs> as well as I hoped, certainly, you know, I went in with, with low expectations on this. I didn't want to set the bar for myself too high. And I think it's been going very well. You know, I've been knocking on doors and connecting with a lot of people. And, um, you know, they've been, I started the campaign just asking people what was important to them. And they were talking about a lot of the same things that were already in my platform. So I was happy to have that validation in that way. And, you know, here's some of their ideas to expand my own and bring theirs to the debate table as well. And, 
it, it, I've been campaigning on Tinder as well, you know, trying new things, using these social platforms to, to do this in a new way and see what works and what doesn't. And that's been going very well. It's, you know, that, it, that platform in particular I picked because it's unique compared to Facebook or Twitter or something in that it's really just one-on-one conversations. And that makes it kind of virtual canvassing in a way where you can really have a private conversation just with one other person about what's important to them. And so like swipe white for Brandon. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so I've, I've had a lot of really good conversations with a lot of people who I wouldn't have met otherwise, you know, I haven't had time to make it to their door yet, or, you know, they live in rural parts of the city that are just really difficult to canvas because it's so long between the units and it doesn't make, you know, political sense to be out there knocking on doors, even though they have very important issues for them as well. And so it's been, it's been a really good experience all around. And I've found, you know, the, the more I'm doing this, the more, I'm making this noise, people seem to recognize that, you know, what I'm doing has value in this race and the issues I'm talking about are important. And so, you know, I've been getting more media attention lately than I was at the beginning of the campaign when I was just some unknown person running for mayor. <laughs> right, right. And it, and one of the, the big issues that I think um, y- you've been running on is, is housing, especially yes, as someone yes. sort of in, um, I, I think we're around the same age. I'm 35 now. Um, yeah, that, yeah, I'm 34. We're right there together. <laughs> right there we go. Um, and, and so, like, housing for people of our generation is a is a big issue. It's a big because, issue. You know, we've sort of we we came around at the, basically the worst time yeah, so far. Yeah. <laughs> the the city's laid out a lot of different reasons that led us to this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and from their own words, none of those issues are zoning, which <laughs> I, I and a lot of experts agree is one of the problems. But one of the things they've spoken a lot about is just like the the demographic size of these generations. You know, millennials are the children of boomers who were a particularly large demographic. And so because there were so many of them, there's so many of us and they're healthier than a generation at their age typically is. And they're staying in their homes longer while we're trying to buy in for the first time. And so there's just this like big unavoidable conflict between our generations trying to own homes in the same neighborhoods at the same time. And that's, that's part of the issue. And there's a lot of other things playing into it, but it is like that and the pandemic and the, the rate changes that the bank of Canada did to, you know, first survive the pandemic and then hold inflation down coming out of it. It's all been a big, you know, terrible, perfect storm of circumstances that has led us to this situation. And There's lots we could have done to avoid it, but and there's lots we could do now to get out of it. But it, it's just like a lot of the problem is bad luck, and we need to do something to to resolve that now. Right there, there was maybe a path where if things had gone a little better, things wouldn't be quite so bad. But now that we're yeah. here, yeah, and like in terms of population estimates and stuff, you know, the city was building for the estimates they thought they had, and the only thing they really got wrong was how many people were going to be moving within Canada, you know, between provinces, Mm -hmm. there's been a large migration to Ontario from other provinces for the last decade or so that just wasn't budgeted for in the last 30 years of construction. Right. And we've also seen uh, places like Toronto specifically, where people are moving further and further afield, which is, you know, pushing everyone else's prices. And that's happening here too. You know, places like uh, Arne Pryor and Carlton Place and Smith's Falls are growing really rapidly and you know, more than most of the other communities in the province. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, we're starting to see the same problems that Toronto and Vancouver have been suffering from for a long time now. Right. And what, what do you see as the so- solutions? Like you've, you, you mentioned earlier zoning, how, how, how is zoning contributed to the problem and sort of like, what's the fix? 
so there's something the the housing community you know the the groups of us passionate about this whether experts or just people like myself that are <laughs> excited about getting a solution in place for this problem and being able to buy into the housing mar market again is missing middle they call it and it's just like you know ottawa has a ton of single family homes and townhouses mm -hmm. and you see those all throughout the city and it has a decent number for a city of this size of you know condo towers but right. There really isn't anything in that space in between. You either have a home, you know, on a lot by itself in Canada or Barhaven or Orleans, or you live in a condo downtown. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> that that space of like low-rise apartment buildings and and triplexes and stuff you don't see very often throughout the city. And a lot of that is because it has been banned by the city. That you're just like there's a zoning class called R1 that much of the city, you know, like urban core that isn't strictly right downtown is is zoned under that includes just single family homes. And you can have an in-law suite, but that's it. You know, if you want to knock that house down and build a duplex on the on the property, it's either straight up not allowed, or you have to apply for a, a zoning exemption or variance, as they call it, and try and you know have convinced the city that what you're doing isn't disruptive and should be allowed and it's going to cost you tens of thousands of dollars to even apply for this. So people right. don't bother, you know, if, and, and if you're, if you're a single landowner and not a big developer, it's just not worth the hassle and the money investment to find out if you could do it. So nobody tries. Right. And, and it's interesting. You, you talk about the missing middle stuff. Um, I, I lived in Montreal for a few years and we lived in, it was, uh, and they have was, tons of, of that middle. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, and I, I was in sort of the far end of NDG. So, you know, far West mm -hmm. of the downtown and, our whole neighborhood was sort of three story mid-rise apartment walk-up things and yeah. and that you just it, there are so few of them here in town it's it's very rare and, and we're and, starting to see a little more in you know places like Hindenburg and Westboro they're building some along the Richmond Wellington strip there but right it's it's still it's a very rare occurrence in Ottawa and it's it's a zoning issue and it's just like a you know nobody has it here so nobody thinks there's interest in having it here it's, right. it's hard to sell community groups and politicians and developers on the idea that this is something that people would want to live in so we've got zoning and and that that has turned into a bit of an interesting issue because you've said outright that like just get rid of r1 zoning and there are other candidates who have said well you know that's going to ruin the character of neighborhoods it's going to destroy the investments of people who have um you know they bought a home and they, they had this expectation that their neighborhood was going to be like this and their neighbors were only going to be one family and so on. Right. Right. Um, but to go to R2 zoning, which is the next level, what, what, what happens then? The, it's, it's just duplexes. That's it. Right. You know, you're, you're allowed to have two units on a single lot and that's the difference between R1 and R2. Right, so we're not talking forty-story towers, no, you know, looming no. over single-family homes. We're we're just talking about slightly bigger buildings. Right. Yeah. There's a there's a, a couple of other like minor changes. You know, like the the minimum setback, which is how far a house has to be from the street. Mm -hmm. It changes slightly. You know, it's one meter shorter. <laughs> You're allowed to have homes three feet closer to the road in R two than R one. But, oh, okay. Like nobody's going to notice. That's not that's not something that significantly changes the character of a community, and it's not something that will have a big impact. No, that, no, that's not like 
you know, yeah. big hulking things coming out to the sidewalk. Right. And... right. Yeah. No, it's it's still a decent front lawn required. And it's still just a single building. It just has, it lets two families live in it. Is that a difficult concept to get across to people that like, this isn't a massive change? Like when you explain it to them, does it sort of register? Yeah. The, the people that I've, you know, had the opportunity to have a, a deep conversation with this, about this topic have, have, you know, easily been won over to the idea that this is something that we should do and that it's not going to be a terribly disruptive change and that this kind of intensification is good and should be allowed across the city. But, you know, there's, there's other candidates, you know, fear mongering to some extent saying that, you know, we can't just let people throw up four story buildings everywhere in the city. And I think that particular idea comes from the the provincial housing affordability task force that met and made some recommendations in their report to the province on what they can do to help solve this housing crisis and they said that you know four units and four stories as of right so you can build that anywhere in the province on any lot without any like zoning restrictions allowed to be in the way this right. was their recommendation to the province and so th there's some some been jumping on that being like we shouldn't do that that's going to totally change neighborhoods all over the city. And I'm not sure that I totally agree it would, but I see that argument. And I do think that we should make this change incrementally and eliminating R1 is something that we can do that, you know, we'll let people see, you know, the couple of duplexes that go up. Does anything change? Is this something we can live with? Could we go a little further later? And, right. and it, it does seem like the province still might do that. They're waiting until after this election to announce exactly what they're doing. But they did talk about how they're going to be bringing in some inclusionary zoning things, which was an, an exciting surprise to hear that, you know, they're, they're going to be waiving development charges for units that include affordable housing, right. which is, which is very cool. And yeah, there's, it, it, there's thoughts that because these recommendations came that they're just going to ban R1 anyway. And that seems to be uh, Catherine McKenney's thought on the subject is they're going to do it. We need to get out ahead of it. Right. Um, I'm not as convinced it's guaranteed to happen. I'd like to see it, but I think the city should do it whether the province does or not. Right. If nothing else, because, you know, we're we're facing something that's fairly serious and the status quo obviously isn't working. Right. And the alternative is, you know, expensive sprawl. We can either intensify the city a little bit and do big new builds in places like, you know, train yards in the Maryvale Mall that are just mm -hmm. giant parking lots where we have this space to build new communities. But existing communities need to contribute to or we have to build further out and we lose green space and we lose agricultural land and the ability to grow our own food. And we just have to pay for the expensive infrastructure to build further and further out of the city. And, you know, in my opinion, that's that's the wrong move. Right. Duplexes and, are a much lesser evil. <laughs> and, and, and we've seen in um, at least a recent study that that sprawl costs the city money where intensification brings in money to the city. So it, it, yes. it does actually have it, it's not just a this is easier and makes more sense, but it actually is much more cost effective. Yeah, yeah, it, it makes good financial sense and good social sense and good urban urban planning sense. There's no reason not to do it other than, you know, unfounded fears about the way it might change communities. Right. Um, in your platform, you you say you want to build 160,000 units by 2032, which, mm -hmm. wow, that's only 10 years away. Um, it is. <laughs> how do you see that happening? Is is that just through the elimination of R1? What, what else needs to be done? 
We need to do a lot. You know, city growth is it's always going to happen and it's always going to be a, a set of competing interests. I don't think we can do this without some urban boundary expansion, but we need to do it in a smart way and we need to do it, you know, in a in a very controlled, very deliberate way where we're only we're only building what we have to in the in the fringe of the city and we're intensifying as much as we can. And so it, it starts with you know, building all of the stuff that the city has approved but hasn't started yet, which might require incentivizing developers. You know, some of them have just been hesitant to build. They don't think the demand is there. Some of them have run out of money thanks to the pandemic, and that's unfortunate. But if we can, you know, find ways to motivate them to build faster, that will help us out. But the the zoning tool is to, like, you know, let let people add more units in their own neighborhoods while the city also focuses on developing you know, underdeveloped commercial centers um, where there's a ton of opportunity to add units and some urban growth. Um, and there's there's projects like, you know, Taywin that I don't I don't think is is the best growth for us. It's <laughs> far removed from any of the other infrastructure right. while outside the city where there's nothing except rural communities right now. It doesn't make a lot of sense to build there. I found that one particularly interesting because they talk, well, we're going to make this a mm -hmm. fully 15-minute city design. And it's it seems very strange to me that you'd do that as far away as possible from the rest of the city. Yeah, I think I think Taggart's you know, concept proposal for the thing is actually pretty good. It's just in a very bizarre location. And I think it might just be because they already own those lands. But if we could do right. a swap with them somewhere and be like, here, we'll take those lands and give you these lands and you can build it here. And where that is you know there's there's a lot of other options we could build it near to barhaven and stittsville and orleans that are already built up and the new infrastructure wouldn't have to sprawl so much or we could you know change where the boundaries of the green belt are there's a mm -hmm. you know a big wasted space just north of bell's corners that could be a great location for this right now it's farms and they're you know proposing to replace farms where they're building this anyway so it'd be the same loss to the community but you know, we've already got a major transit station being built there in Moody that serves nothing. <laughs> it's right. It's not in Bell's Corners and it's not next to the D&D campus. It's several kilometers from either. So <laughs> like to build something there around this transit hub we've already got, it, it would make a lot more sense to me. Right. And it's interesting you talk about like putting a transit station sort of in the middle of that. And at the same time, you can go downtown and it's the, the stations are actually really far apart on sort of i had to go down elgin street recently mm -hmm. and took the lrt downtown and then it was like oh yeah elgin is really long <laughs> and i still have to walk like five ten minutes to get there until i get down elgin um it, it seems like sometimes in the city we are doing things looking at things on a sort of purely cost basis it's just we, we take a very easy option to things and it doesn't feel like that's working I, I would agree with you. Yeah. You know, the the approach for the last, I mean, probably the city's entire existence, given the collection of mayors we've had, has been how do we spend as little money as possible? And mm -hmm. and that approach, you know, there's there's value to fiscal responsibility, but not at the cost of everything else. And, you know, taxes have gone up way less than inflation over the last few years. So it's led to effective cuts in service. And it's why we're seeing roads and transit in the state they are today. And we just spent billions of capital dollars building an LRT network to replace the pretty good bus transit way instead of serving a new community with this thing. And mm -hmm. <laughs> it's it's a lot of strange decision decision making to, you know, an outsider like me.
Yeah, and and is that something you found as that kind of outsider? You're getting some traction with people to say like, you know, I don't I don't think along these same lines. Like, let's let's look at this differently. Have have you had an impact either sort of at the doors or have you seen more broadly that that you're able to bring that kind of like, hey guys, wait a second, what are we doing here? Kind of conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, there's there's a huge appetite for change in this city right now. And a lot of the people I've been speaking to have been saying they'd like to see things done differently and they'd like, you know, a council that's looking to build a, a city that works for more people and is, you know, willing to spend a little more to do it. People are still, you know, it's it's a tough time for budgets right now. People are worried about inflation out of control. They don't want to see property taxes skyrocket or anything like that, but they are willing to, you know, people are willing to pay their fair share for the the city that they want to have. And right. You know, it's, it's not a time of pure austerity, like some other candidates would make it out to be. No. And, and it is interesting to use a word like austerity and talking about the last, well, I guess, like you say, the, the history of the city, certainly mm-hmm. the amalgamated city, that despite the fact that we've built this gigantic LRT project and so on, it is even in itself quite an austere project. E- even now, I mean, yeah. it's very... You talk about in your uh, platform about sort of setting a national example, and it doesn't feel like a national example, even just in sort of the choices we make. Right. It's not something that we can be proud of, that we can brag to the world and be like, look at this incredible system we've built. It's it's fine. No, it's, it's, <laughs> it, well, it, welcome to Parliament yeah. Station, which kind of smells like a toilet. <laughs> yeah, it it works well enough when it works, but... Mm-hmm. It's not it's not something to brag to the world about. And, you know, some of the some of the things I've talked to my platform about to fix that are, you know, like including, for example, retail stations in transit stations that we can use to recover some of the cost of this, that it doesn't need to all be fare box revenue and to make some of the more isolated stations, you know, worth visiting or right you know even just offering something to people while they're waiting for their transfer you know herdman station used to have a a little retail you know convenience store in it where you could buy bus tickets and get a drink on a hot day or you know whatever else you needed while you were waiting for your bus and when they turned it into a train station they took that out (laughs) yes and yeah this is we're we're moving in a very bizarre direction when we take on projects like this do you see a a fix to what we're doing um, right now, just not just with the LRT, but we've also seen um, quite a serious issue with um, bus service just disappearing. Um, sometimes two, three buses in a row won't show up on a route. You know, the it's it's a difficult thing to fix for sure. We mm-hmm. don't have a complete network yet, and it's something that we're continuing to work on as we upgrade to trains instead of buses. Um, you know, you can you can debate whether this was a worthwhile use of the funds that we spent on it but at this point we're committed and we got to finish and we got to get the trains you know through stage two and out to Canada and Barhaven in stage three but as we're cleaning it up as we're you know putting in the work to move the stuff in a better direction as we're f- building out the network we need to recognize first that remote work is here to stay you know it's mm-hmm. there's we're seeing some protest from some businesses and some government departments about dragging people back into the office but I don't think they're going to win that battle. And even if they do, it's not going to be everyone. You know, a lot right. of uh, Shopify, for example, who's our biggest tech company right now, one of the largest employers in the region, gave up all of their leases and said, we're just remote forever now. And so 
this idea of building a network of, of systems that brings people to downtown and then home again and doesn't do anything else is not going to work for a city going forward. Um, right. And so we need to, as we're building the complete communities that I talk so much about and the city mentions in its official plan several times, that we should be connecting those to one another rather than you know, funneling everybody to downtown so that it's easy to get from Canada to Bell's Corners to Barhaven to Nepean, which are all you know, near neighbors. But some of them, if you're trying to do it by bus right now, it can take several hours where it oh. takes 10 or 15 minutes to drive. Right. And I, I grew up in Barhaven and, you yeah, know, so, you know, <laughs> I mean, even taking a bus within Barhaven, it, yeah. it, you know, you could almost get downtown faster. Right. You know, depending right, on where you Because that's live. what the system is built to do. It's for right. commuters. It's not for people to move around within their own communities. And if you could trust that the bus would be there when it should be there and that it would be on a regular schedule. So if you missed it, you only had to wait, you know, five, eight minutes for the next one. Mm -hmm. Then people wouldn't mind walking a few extra minutes to get to their bus and we wouldn't have to run them on every single street through the city. And then we could use, you know, that efficiency to run more buses on the same routes that move people around from their community hubs to the next. So that if you live in one and work in another, it's very easy to do that. And and so I think, you know, this is this is my vision for the future is that the buses run on fewer streets, but more often on them. And we dedicate more infrastructure to them so that they don't get stuck in traffic and end up, you know, clustered together in a group of four an hour right. late. <laughs> oh, those those are always fun. Yeah. Um, you, you talked a bit about um, during that that recent debate. Um, you mentioned that parking should be more expensive downtown. I think nine dollars. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and, and and this is. I think it's it's a it's actually something that's a really interesting idea because um, when it's easier to park than take other methods, if you rebalance this so that parking shouldn't be your first option, but there are these other options, like you say, where you where you can rely on the bus. Yeah, parking doesn't need to be cheap because you don't need to drive. Right. And and I've talked about at other debates that people will always choose convenience no matter what. And so, you know, if there's a, a trash can on the street and no recycling bin available, you're just going to throw out your recyclables because you don't want to carry them around for the next half hour. And, right. you know, we see this in everything. People choose convenience all the time. And if our systems are so built in a way that driving is the only convenient choice, then we're going to have an impossible time you know, convincing people to take transit. And so if we continue to charge fair prices to fund part of it, we're just never going to recover that money because people aren't going to choose to take it because it's not convenient. And right. if we're saying we want people to use things that aren't their vehicles for climate purposes, you know, we want to reduce those emissions. The only option is just to accelerate the switch to electric vehicles because people aren't going to stop driving unless they have another choice. And right. So the, the $9, to be clear, is not something that I would do day one in office if I were elected. It's not, it was meant to be an illustrative example of like, if we wanted to take transit prices way down, this is where we would have to take parking and its current infrastructure to get there. Um, right. And, it, you know, I, I don't think that we have transit in a place today where we could just say, no, everybody has to take this now. We're not going to, you know, we're going to jack up the price of parking and if you don't want to drive, then you have to take the transit. You have to take the train or the bus. People aren't going to do it because those systems suck. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. so like raising pr parking prices today just hurts downtown businesses further that have been suffering for several years now through the pandemic and through the convoy occupation. And it's not, it's not what we want to do. But if we fix the other infrastructure, if we make transit a great viable choice that takes you know five minutes longer than driving, but now you don't have to focus on driving and you can work or 
read or whatever it is you want to do while you're on the train, or you can bike and, you know, have that active transportation and get your workout in as you're traveling to wherever you're going, or, you know, ride one of our e-scooters in this pilot that's been going well, or whatever it else it is you choose. If the infrastructure is there, people will take that option sometimes. And then we can start to disincentivize driving. Right. Not yeah, it's, until. It's, Not it's, until. It's a two-part process. It is. And it, it is. It, it really requires that, that people are able to do mm -hmm. the other thing before right. you make the, the thing you want to disincentivize, right. you know. Yeah. But parking. that said, you know, we, we haven't raised parking prices much over the last decade. And the cost of repairing our roads has gone up significantly. So I do think it would be smart to have a small raise in parking fees immediately to help, you know, repair the roads for the drivers. <laughs> um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Sure. Um, but I, I guess just sort of as a last question, what is... What is the big thing that you think you could bring to to the city, you know, if let's say a whole series of things happen and you do end up winning? Like what what, what will that bring for the city? So the the combination of things for me that I think, you know, there it's a field of 14 candidates and it's hard to pick one thing to stand out from everyone, but <laughs> <laughs> my my winning combination I think is that you know, I've, I've put a lot of work into understanding how the city goes together. And I think my proposals are realistic and, you know, things that we actually have the power to do, which isn't necessarily the case for all of the down ballot candidates like myself. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm, you know, one of the youngest in the race. I've got an energy of youth to try these things out and keep fighting for the, the things that I want to see happen in the city without, you know, tiring of it quickly. And, <laughs> My my technological background as a software developer just gives me a, a really good view into how we can both leverage technology to improve city services, you know, things like swimming lesson and camp signups that have been a spectacular disaster this year, but also like using data from the city's different services to better drive our decisions and make sure we're doing the right things and that we can, you know, very transparently justify it to the public. Right. Well, Brandon Bay, I really want to uh, thank you for coming on the show and uh, good luck. Yeah. Thank you again, Robert. I'd like to once again thank all our Lookout members for making this show possible and also thank Brandon Bay for his time. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for our breakdown of the election results and what they mean for you. Don't forget to subscribe. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts. If you like what you've heard, please rate and review it. It helps other people find the pod. We'll see you next time.